welcome to a very special edition of Science, A Candle in the Dark. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. And I'm joining, here, joining you here for a special episode where we are going to discuss an important issue that affects science. This has also been a remarkable week for science. First of all, I want to start off by greeting everybody with Happy Darwin Day, because today is the birthday of Charles Darwin. Uh, and uh, he would have been 217 years old if he was still alive. So happy Darwin Day to everyone. Uh, we also had some remarkable discoveries in science this week with uh, just yesterday physicists find, you know, announcing that they have evidence of gravity waves that were discovered or predicted by Albert Einstein over 100 years ago. Uh, we've also had uh, yesterday was uh, marked as a women in science technology and engineering and math or women in stem day celebrating the contributions of women to science uh, i'm just mentioning those as sort of highlights but there's something else that has also been published in a prominent science journal this week which provides a context for our special conversation today so the journal Science, which is a premier journal from the American Association for Advancement of Science, just this week, in, in today's print edition, has a story about a sexual assault and harassment carried out by a very prominent biological anthropologist who works on human origins research and is based in the American Museum of Natural History, which, became, which happened during an anthropology conference a year ago and has been... Uh, stirring things up in the anthropology community in, a, in remarkable ways. But that is just the latest example of what have been coming out in the news media over the last few months in a series of cases where high-profile scientists at various academic institutions in the U.S. and elsewhere have been uh, found to have histories of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and in many cases they've been either you know, mildly reprimanded but not really sanctioned enough to stop the conduct, uh, or they've been passed on from one university or one institution to another, with uh, serious consequences for those who have been at the receiving end of the harassment, but relatively lighter consequences for the scientists who carried out such behavior. Uh, and often it seems to be tied in with the, how prominent the scientist is, how they, what their perceived star value is, or how much grant money they bring in. So just to go over a few examples, you had uh, uh, the case of Jeff Marcy, uh, an astronomer, a very prominent astronomer at the at, uh, University of California in Berkeley, who it turned out had a history of sexual harassment even before he came to Berkeley when he was in San Francisco State University and a series of complaints by a number of women uh, had been ignored or sort of brushed under the carpet until it sort of the dam broke in a way and Berkeley was forced to undertake an investigation and eventually when it became a public uh, case uh, Jeff Marcy was forced to retire or you know, resign from his position that was followed by several other cases in astronomy and you know, if you follow in social media, there was even a hashtag #AstroSH, which is astronomy sexual harassment. So it is big enough to generate a lot of attention. So there's a number of other cases. You know, there was a case in Caltech, and then uh, more recently there was a case of a molecular biologist at the University of Chicago, who had moved there from another institution, and had been hired even when the search committee was aware of sexual misconduct in his past. And again, you know, there's been sanctions and, and the university has to face the consequence when these things becomes public. Uh, along with that, last month there was also a case that actually is a much older case that came to light from the astronomy community when uh, uh, an astronomer who used to be at the University of Arizona uh, turned out to have had a history of sexual harassment where the university had investigated it but they allowed the, the faculty to move to another institution and the bad behavior continued. And this, the investigation 
which happened, I think, in 2004 or 2005, eventually reached uh, the attention of Congresswoman Jackie Speier. Uh, she's a California representative in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives. And she brought it to the floor of Congress as an issue that legislators at the national level, level need to look at. So yesterday I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Congresswoman Speier. So we'll start with uh, uh, the interview. I know and I appreciate that you've taken leadership in addressing issues of sexual harassment in the sciences. Uh, I'm curious about what brought this to your attention as something that Congress and legislators needed to look at. Well, a couple of things. First, um, I have a PhD who's a member of my staff, mm -hmm. and she has a, a, a widespread scientific network, and she was made aware of a number of incidents. And um, what's happened as a result of just these initial inquiries is that there's been a floodgate that's opened. Um, we've had over 40 survivors of sexual assault or sexual harassment in science and academia that have reached out to us since I made the first speech on the House floor. In terms of legislative action, I'm curious about how you see Congress playing a role from here on. You've, you've opened up your office for p victims to report in, and so what do you see as a, the next step that you can do? Well, we've got to fix the situation. I mean, you can't have persons who have such extraordinary um, power over the careers of young scientists be able to impose on them their sexual antics and get away with it. So one of the first things we have to do is make sure that under Title IX there are rigorous mm -hmm. investigations that take place yes and that once those investigations are complete to the extent that they are substantiated that that report needs to follow that scientist so that uh, another institution is not unwittingly accepting what in many cases is a sexual predator yeah this is one of the issues that has come up with something that almost seems to parallel what happened to the catholic church with uh, predators or people with the history of harassment being passed from one university to another. Well, we've seen it in the military as well, yes. where sexual assaults have gone on for long periods of time and have not been appropriately prosecuted. And so these predators um, continue to have uh, one victim after another. So it's time where these closed institutions, whether it's the military or a college campus, um, is held accountable by making sure that that kind of illegal behavior does not go on and is properly investigated and sanctions imposed. I was curious in terms of legislative action. I know uh, with Title IX and with the issues in intercollegiate athletics, there is a, the HR 275 has been proposed to establish a presidential commission to look into the issues. Do you envision something like that for for the other aspects of universities, the rest of academia? Well, commissions are only as um, valuable as their recommendations are turned into action. So I'm more interested at this point in creating an environment so that this kind of conduct is not tolerated. And that really requires following the money. Yes. If we can persuade NSF and NIH and NASA to turn off the spigot so that we don't have taxpayer money supporting sexual predators or sexual harassers, that would go a long way to dealing with this problem. I don't think that scientists should receive funds who are unethical. And we've got to make sure that those, those funds do not follow that unethical scientist uh, from one university to another. Yeah, and this actually goes back to conversations that I believe NIH had back in the, the 1980s when some of these issues were addressed initially and, you know, other aspects of ethical conduct were also discussed on the table, but somehow sexual misconduct and, and harassment didn't become part of all the other ethical aspects that these agencies look at. You know, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it, it's interesting that, you know, plagiarism mm -hmm. would be properly... Sanctioned, yeah. Sanctioned. But 
something that is in most criminal settings a violent crime, whether it's sexual assault or harassment, um, is somehow um, disregarded. So it's just elevating these um, these forms of behavior um, to a to a scrutiny that will prevent it from you know continuing um, to take place. There's too many brilliant scientists out there whose careers have been sidelined because they had a sexual predator for a mentor or advisor. NSF and NASA have made statements recently following your taking up the public position in Congress about taking this seriously and threatening to pull funding. But what are the teeth behind these statements? Do you see any action happening anytime soon? Well, it's going to be something that we have to craft in mm-hmm. in the form of legislation, I think. It's much like the military. You know, they've said for decades that they have zero tolerance for mm-hmm. sexual harassment and sexual assault. And yet 20,000 service members were sexually assaulted last year. I guess we are only beginning to see the stories from academia get more attention now. You've already received, you said, 40 cases, and maybe we're just at the tip of an iceberg. I also think that in the sciences, because there's so much field work Mm -hmm. that places, um, you know, graduate students and postdocs in um, settings where they're somewhat isolated, creates an environment where that behavior goes undetected. And it's oftentimes undetected because the the victim is too concerned that it may jeopardize their professional career. One of the questions that came up when I was discussing this with colleagues here was that if NASA and NSF, for example, start threatening to pull funding, what kind of effect that might have on junior scientists reporting? Because if there's a greater risk that the PI will lose a grant, does that make them more vulnerable to the careers being sidelined? Hopefully, will it address this issue and scrub the conduct so that applications for new funds they would not be eligible for? Along with that, do you see pathways for rehabilitation in cases where somebody might actually genuinely undergo change in their conduct? Well, rehabilitation is an interesting term. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> um, and and I'm not really you know properly educated to know. Um, to what extent rehabilitation is effective in this setting. Um, and I'm trying to educate people. myself too. So, I'm going to have to move on now. Mm-hmm. Any other last questions you have? You mentioned the military as a, as a, a different closed institution that has had a history of this. Uh, and there are also mi- research labs in the military that also get funding from federal agencies. So... I guess, you know, I'm, I'm just curious about how you see legislation or these efforts to make sure ethical conduct is maintained is going to play out in different kinds of institutions that have different cultures and different procedures for handling these. Well, the extent to which there are labs within the military that would, you know, tolerate sexual misbehavior, you know, their funds would, would be impacted as well. So that was Congresswoman Jackie Spear, and I want to thank her again for uh, giving us the time uh, to to speak about this important issue, and and more importantly for leading the charge in Congress to to have legislative attention devoted to this important issue, which in some ways I started the show by highlighting Einstein and Darwin, whom we are celebrating this week because of the big discoveries they made, but think about all the other scientists whose voices are not, you know, who, whose discoveries are thwarted because of bad behavior by others, mostly men. So what I'd like to do now is sort of introduce the, round, the panel of a number of women scientists from many different disciplines uh, who have uh, agreed to be part of this conversation here. So, and, and I'm going to try and sit back and hand over the conversation to them. So let me start by introducing, uh, I have three guests here in the studio with me and uh, two others on the phone. So uh, first I have uh, Dr. Kaveri Kargupta. Uh, she's a primatologist uh, with a PhD in anthropology from Arizona State University and she's currently directing a citizen science-based project on a nocturnal primate in Bangalore in India. Uh, and 
we have uh, Dr. Catherine Forbes in the studio. She's a, also a PhD in cultural anthropology and she's on the faculty of the Women's Studies program at Fresno State. <coughs> and her research focuses uh, in part on Title IX and sexual discrimination and harassment cases in athletics and also in academia. And uh, we have Dr. Amanda Mortimer from the psychology department. She's been on the show before. And uh, she has two PhDs in uh, neurobiology and uh, psychology. Uh, and then on the phone, we have Dr. Janet Stamwedel, uh, uh, also a dual PhD, philosophy and chemistry. She's a chair of the philosophy department at San Jose State University. Uh, and uh, she also is a columnist for Forbes.com, where she's been writing about the larger uh, ramifications of these sexual harassment cases and interviewing people who've been who faced harassment uh, in various settings. And then we have uh, uh, Dr. Katie Hind. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. Yes. Uh, she's uh, uh, Dr. Hind is a, a professor in anthropology at Arizona State University, and she also does fascinating research on uh, milk production in uh, humans and the biology of milk. So in some ways, I'm sort of thinking, I'm looking at, you know, five women with seven PhDs between them <laughs> and all do fascinating research, which is what I'd really like to hear about. But here we are dealing with something that actually hinders people from doing research. So uh, welcome all of you to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So uh, since we were talking with, with uh, Congresswoman Spear, let me start by asking uh, Dr. Forbes here about the legal aspects of enforcement and how Title IX cases work and what that sure. means for science. Sure. So um, most of the cases that have come out in the news recently um, deal with faculty members and then people who are graduate students. So under Title IX, um, graduates or students can make claims of harassment, of gender discrimination um, through that legal provision. Um, if they were if they were both employees, um, we kind of look to a different set of law through Title VII, but Title IX applies here. And um, though Title IX was passed in 1972, it wasn't until 1992 that it really started to address sexual harassment with court cases that um, affirmed that sexual harassment was a category of gender discrimination that was covered under Title IX. And it wasn't until 1997 that the Office of Civil Rights, which enforces Title IX compliance, or is the office that's federal office that's charged with um, um, investigations of Title IX and then coming up with some kind of remedy, that they actually issued guidelines to universities and schools, K through 12 schools, about how to handle Title IX. So if it, if someone, if a student, for instance, is met with harassment or is, you know, is um, uh, harassed in, in a campus setting or in um, activities that are associated with the university or sponsored with the university, such as in field work, then they can use the legal or try to get a legal remedy through Title IX. Um, every campus has a Title IX office. Uh, well, they're supposed to. <laughs> um, and uh, it starts at the campus level, but they also, at the same time, um, they can report, they can actually leapfrog that and report directly to the OCR for investigations. So where, where is this process failing yeah. uh, in, in the sciences or in academia? Yeah. So I mean, it's a pretty complicated <laughs> qu um, uh, question, but I, let me just say a couple of things. I mean, First, um, um, I think as noted um, by Congresswoman Speer, is that Title IX doesn't have a lot of teeth in that um, theoretically, even before legislation about NSF taking away funds or potentially taking away funds from universities that have Title IX violations, they're still, the federal government could still do that, they just never have. Um, so it, there's not a lot of monetary teeth with it. Um, the second thing is that I think that there's, there's a real problem in the approach to sexual harassment that's emerged in the last 10 years, um, or last 15 years. Um, we see it as this, as this form of individual bad behavior rather than reflective of an institutional environment that is in and of itself discriminatory. 
So what happens then is that investigators may look at individuals, but the whole context that will give rise to that will give rise to um, sexual discrimination through sexual harassment. Um, some research, researchers have called it structural vulnerability. So those institutions or organizations that have lots of institutional or structural um, vulnerabilities, such as in science, in the lab system, mm-hmm. um, will have higher rates of sexual harassment. Um, and the investigations, so the, but the investigations are people who are, uh, well, it's kind of... Um, I think one of the Title IX litigants at Fresno State, um, Lindy Vivas, called it, um, it's like the fox guarding the hen house so the, <laughs> in, a, in, yeah. in hearings about um, Title IX at Fresno State, that you have an HR representative, usually, is also the Title IX coordinator. So they're not only the person who is defending the university from Title IX claims, they're also the people who are investigating it. Um, so I think part of it has to do with not having an independent voice in there. Yeah, I'd also like to put out there, just from my observation at this university and other universities, that there is a dramatic lack of transparency mm-hmm. I see in the Title IX process that I find incredibly upsetting and encouraging of continued behavior. When you look at the way the tenuring process works, it is supposed to be a personnel action. It is supposed to be looking at this person's behavior over the past six years, and do we want to keep on doing that? Mm -hmm. And yet my experience has been that Title IX considerations are something that are considered private personnel matters, which are then not moved into the tenuring process. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is hugely problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and since you're talking about these investigations and and how evidence might come out or not, and you know, we we all in science we all like to go with evidence. So I want to uh, turn to Dr. Hine because she was co-author of uh, one of the first uh, detailed studies of sexual harassment and sexual assault cases in anthropology in field studies. So, Dr. Hine, what can you tell us about your study and and what that set off? Yes, hi. Thank you so much for having me on the show today, and and thank you for covering such a Mm -hmm. serious and important topic. Um, Our study, the Survey of Academic Field Experiences, uh, conducted by myself uh, and other professors, Kate Clancy, Julian Rutherford, and Robin Nelson, intended to shine a light on uh, the experiences that both men and women and and others uh, that uh, were having while they were going into oftentimes remote locations, into um, situations uh, that oftentimes get described as what happens in the field stays in the field, and and how those experiences were impacting their ability to pursue their educational and career goals. Up until the time of our study, there was a, a conventional wisdom, if you will, that such experiences were rare <laughs> and were uh, the unfortunate but insurmountable byproduct of conducting research in foreign cultures. Mm. But and the, but the, the conventional wisdom you said was was somewhat different from the actual experience and what women in general talked about, right? I, I, um, yeah, ex- <laughs> that is exactly it. And, yeah. and this, 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 was the big, this was the big issue is that because... There was this conventional wisdom of rare events that were uh, due to you know different cultures. There wasn't broad discussion about these issues. Mm-hmm. They were not considered to be um, of, of, of great importance in the dialogue about uh, the leaky pipeline. And and what we actually found among our over 650 respondents was that these events were not as rare as thought. Uh, The sampling method doesn't allow us to say the exact precise rate or prevalence, but we had hundreds of women and and dozens of men reporting that they had experienced inappropriate comments. And then we had over a hundred women who had um, experienced inappropriate touching that was unwanted. Hmm. Um, And and so they they were happening in appreciable numbers. And most importantly, it was within the research team. Overwhelmingly, these experiences were coming from their professional research colleagues at the field site. And for women, most of their experiences were coming 
from up the hierarchy, mm-hmm. individuals that had more professional power and potentially power over their careers. And this completely changed the nature of the dialogue within the academic community. Yeah, and as uh, Congressman Spear mentioned, you know, since she opened up her office for people to report cases, she described it as opening the floodgates. So there really are, you know, and your study was about one discipline, but we've had cases from other disciplines now. We we actually had over 30 different disciplines represented in our study. Um, But but it was likely because of our network. We had um, a majority of respondents identified as being anthropologists or archaeologists, but we actually ended up with respondents from across the social sciences, life sciences, and physical sciences. And so it, 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 um, and then after the study came out, a number of people, as we saw online social media, Twitter networks, and Facebook, were spontaneously disclosing and saying mm-hmm. things like, I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. By not talking about <laughs> these issues, we've mm-hmm. isolated our colleagues, mm-hmm. and, and that has been to the detriment of academia. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and from your own discipline of anthropology, uh, can you speak and say anything about this, the big case that broke into the news this week and how the, the community has responded in some ways to try and address the issues, right? Yes. Um, the, the community has actually been responding in advance of these uh, allegations from multiple women against our colleague at the American Museum of Natural History. We, we within the field, many of us became aware of them uh, in 2015. And since then, we've seen, uh, for example, the American Association for Physical Anthropologists enacting and um, strengthening uh, their sexual harassment policy, their sexual misconduct statements. Um, they've uploaded that and put that on their front landing page of the of the society's website and we've had more people um, in the wake of the safe study and then in an accelerated way in the last year have seen people um, implement principles of community implement uh, codes of conduct and sexual harassment policies within their labs both in the field and in university settings and at conferences so we've seen an incredible acceleration of community response just in the days since Uh, the science article came out, uh, over 800 of our colleagues have signed a statement to end sexual misconduct within academia uh, that's publicly available. And and these are, um, a majority of the respondents at this time are actually faculty. We've got hundreds of faculty saying, no more. Well, that's that's good consciousness raising on your part. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, it's also a really interesting strategy to not rely on university institutions, mm-hmm. but to look towards professional societies to be some of the people who are enforcing or trying to end this kind of gender discrimination. Um, especially since it it can, you know, it's um, there's a different level of. Um, I don't know, attentiveness to the problem that can be done, I think, through professional societies that isn't being done at the university level. So I I think it's a great move. I think that goes back into my concern about it being treated as a personnel issue. Sure. Because I think there really is this issue that when you know something you kind of sort of wish you didn't, Mm -hmm. then you're being told it's a personnel issue. You aren't supposed to know that. You shouldn't do anything about it. And that's really problematic for me. Sure. And I think that, you know, part of, you know, as um, uh, Katie said, you know, people, women um, are speaking out now in in the field of anthropology in part because they, in that way, they don't feel as isolated. But personnel processes within universities, um, you know, the confidentiality rules mean that as soon as something happens and everybody is, nobody is supposed to talk about. But, you know, marginalized peoples within institutions have always used these networks um, to, uh, these informal networks to get information about you know how power works within a setting so it really does kind of um, damper the discussion Um, the confidentiality rules kind of leads us to not more fully address the structural um, problems that are there that give rise to the the behavior in the first place well it makes it so no one even knows what the outcome is Mm -hmm. you can't even see if it was substantiated or not you have no information at all yeah this might be a point where uh, 
would a philosopher like to jump in? Sure, yeah. Uh, So this is Janet. Um, Let me say that, um, you know, I'm I'm wearing two hats here because I I look at this as a philosopher of science who thinks hard about what kind of ethics you need to build knowledge, but I also am dragging around this misspent scientific use as a a laboratory uh, chemist, Mm -hmm. and uh, that informs some of my understanding not just of uh, how science and scientific communities and scientific training work, but also what the impact of harassment in those settings can be. And, um, you know, so much of this um, is heartening, first of all, that professional communities are saying we have this stake in uh, maintaining sound uh, relationships within our communities so that we can keep on building the kind of knowledge that defines our scientific community. Because universities don't always get that. Uh, And sometimes, especially in recent days, universities have had to look at the bottom line at how much grant money is being brought in. And, you know, faculty are a lot of sunk costs and students seem like an infinitely renewable resource and um, this doesn't necessarily motivate uh, great responses to this kind of problem by universities. Um, But there's a lot of people I think who look at sexual harassment in science and say, oh, well, you know, this this is just someone being a jerk and that's a problem, but He's such a good scientist, and we don't want to lose him. And, you know, these people are losing fact of the site that harassment within scientific communities actually does harm to science uh, by you know, doing two things. First of all, by hurting knowledge building, by damaging the relationships within the scientific community that you actually need so that scientists are interacting with each other and brainstorming and strategizing about how to answer particular scientific questions and checking the results they've gotten and looking for errors and things like that. Um, but also by undermining another big thing that grant money for research is paying for, and that's the training of new scientists. Mm -hmm. Scientific research isn't just building new knowledge, it's building new scientists, Mm -hmm. too. So harassment is hurting people's ability. If your advisor is, is sending you email about how he's thinking of how you look in a bathing suit and you start avoiding the lab or avoiding the department, that undermines your training as a scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, if a colleague at the telescope where you work, a visiting uh, scholar at the telescope where you work, uh, is stalking you, you're going to be less likely to be showing up at the facility where you need to be to be collecting the data to build the knowledge. So you're taking knowledge builders out of play. You're undermining relationships between knowledge builders. That is how we make sure that the knowledge that's being built is good uh, and wasting a whole lot of grant money in the process. So it's, it's not just these are people being mean and wouldn't it be nice if they were nicer. Uh, these are actually people who I would argue are engaged in an activity at least as harmful to scientific knowledge building as plagiarism or falsification or fabrication. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. And you were talking about the, the effects on individual researchers as well. So I want to ask uh, Dr. Mortimer uh, about the, the psychological costs for people subject to this. I mean, you know, Dr. Hines said earlier about how women were the ones reporting inappropriate touching and other, you know, acts of sort of harassment uh, from from their survey. And in general, it seems like there's this, I've heard it referred to as this sort of academic anti-network where women warn each other about potential threats. So... uh, Living in that kind of environment, what are the conse- what are the psychological effects? I think people keep secrets. Mm-hmm. I think people are all secret keepers, and 
it's nice if there's somebody older there to help guide you along, but I think that the majority of people, and this is just my opinion and I don't have data behind it, unfortunately, <laughs> I would guess that the majority of people in this situation are battling it out on their own. And the reason why is because there is significant data that suggests when you tell regardless of the fact that as a woman, as the person with less power who's being offended against, you're the one who pays. There is just no question that it is bad for people's careers to discuss having this sort of harassment or relationship issues come to light. So I would be very, very concerned about whether people actually are getting too much in the way of assistance and guidance. I mean, more assistance and guidance would be great. But I, I think that's also just the nature of being a woman who is harassed, regardless of the science aspect. Mm -hmm. I think there is very much with the permeation of rape culture in this culture, I think there's yeah. very much a women are a commodity if a woman is harassed or touched or looked at it in any way as a sexual being that she brought it on herself that she should be quieter yeah. that she should cover more <laughs> that it is her shame that mm -hmm. someone looked upon her with desire and i think that that goes doubly so in the scientific community yeah so i mean in some ways it maybe it's the scientific community is a microcosm of this larger rape culture as you said that we all seem to be part of but i also want to sort of you know i think it's good that we're hearing about scientific society is beginning to look at at ways to address this because as academics, as scientists, as knowledge builders, we should be taking the lead on changing this broader culture and not be subsumed by it. Yeah. <coughs> I think that's absolutely the case. I also think there's been fascinating work done on microaggressions in both looking at ethnicity and cultures as well as gender issues mm -hmm. and how over time being regarded as for example, a sexual being more so than a scientific being, how that shapes one's behavior and how that changes one's ability to enact one's science accurately. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's also this huge shift in how people develop. The other thing that I'll put out there that I think is a <coughs> huge issue is I've had friends that are on the faculty side and friends that are on the graduate student side, both of graduate student faculty pairings, which are incredibly common. Mm -hmm. and incredibly mm -hmm. yeah. inappropriate as far as the amount of power available. Yeah. And most of the people I know who've been involved in one of these relationships, part of the excitement was, hey, we're kind of sneaking around a little bit. Look at us. We're a little bit wild and crazy, mm -hmm. but we're different than everybody else because we really love each other. So mm -hmm. it's great. And I think that there really is a feeling that it is a voluntary relationship entering in without an understanding of how difficult relationships become when they are not at a equivalent power level. And I've and seen I, a number of them just go south really badly. If I can join, jump in yeah. as, as the ethicist slash philosopher of science, <laughs> um, I think what people forget in these voluntary relations, well, they forget a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> you know, For one thing, the person with more power forgets that um, the person with less... Uh, you know, can can look all, you know, freely consenting and stuff, even at moments where it doesn't feel that free. Uh, in, in the pieces I wrote for Forbes about people who have been harassed and how they decide whether to report or not, one of the people I, I spoke to uh, told about a relationship with a professor that started out consensually and then uh, she decided she wanted out, and he was not happy with that, and he used his power against her. Mm -hmm. uh, you I, know, I reckon there's a mm -hmm. lot of these relationships that go on longer than they might if there weren't really clear consequences for the person with less power getting out. The other thing that I think these, um, these inappropriate couplings ignore is the impact on the larger community, whether it's a, a mm -hmm. learning community, a classroom community, uh, uh, research group community for everyone else if the boss and one of the students are knocking boots you know what kind of 
uh, impact is that going to have on the other trainees' access to the boss and the boss's objective opinion and the boss's help and things like that? It's just, it messes with dynamics that especially as a scientific trainee, you need not to have messed with because learning how to be a grown-up scientist messes with your head enough already. <laughs> I, I'd like to put out there, I in no way was endorsing the concept. I was Absolutely. just saying, I, I, I see it that. all the time. <laughs> um, and I think that every single one of these things that I've seen absolutely results in a terrible outcome at the end where people thought it was consensual, but it wasn't because it's impossible to be consensual with this level of um, power differential. And really, it just entirely goes on, in my opinion, the higher power person, it's absolutely their job to not get involved. It absolutely right. well, is their job to not ask and even shut it down if the lower power person is the one initiating. Right, okay. and you raise this, and of course, people will say, oh, but there's this happily married couple mm -hmm. of decades that started <laughs> yeah. this way, and so, so we can't make a rule against it. And then I'll say, especially if I'm talking to a chemist, but okay, so, you know, there's probably times that you can do your dangerous experiment without your personal protective equipment and not get hurt, but that doesn't mean you should. That just means you got lucky. <laughs> well, uh, I, think, I think Dr. Hind has to leave in a few minutes, so I want to uh, get her view on something else before we let her go. And this is uh, something that I think uh, Dr. Martin mentioned just now, uh, a, a little while ago, about uh, the intersections of sexual harassment and gender discrimination with other kinds of harassment that also inhibit people from doing what their best in sciences. Yeah, thank you. I think I think um, we're able to have um, sustained conversations um, and lots and lots and lots of examples and, and and accumulated data about the experiences of women in academia, in part because white women have been the most successful at, at entering the academy um, and increasing our representation among it. But we have to recognize that there remain many, many, many groups, um, many identities that are underrepresented within academia. And, and the information that we're getting about harassment, bullying, marginalization, microaggression. We need to be thinking bigger about how we deprive any number of our colleagues of their dignity based on, on aspects of their identity. And I think that we especially see at the intersection where women of color are getting you know, dumble, a, 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 a double ding because of both um, you know, uh, barriers because of their race, as well as obstacles because of their gender. And I think we in academia are are due for some very serious grappling and some serious self-interrogation about how we unwittingly close doors and 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 make different people feel unwelcome, and how we are failing our job as educators, as scientists as people in whom the public has entrusted with their tax funding for our research, that we are failing at our duties when we do not consider how to make our, our environments welcoming to everybody and equal opportunity for them when they get here. Thank you. Uh, I think we'll, we'll pick up on that, but thank you for being on the show. I think you have, to, you have another appointment. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Thank you so much. Thanks for including me, and thank you, everybody, for... Um, being so instrumental in these important conversations. Okay. Uh, so I, on this question of intersectionality and, and other uh, aspects of being, uh, for, especially for women of color and so on, I want to turn to Dr. Kar Gupta, who's also worked in field disciplines and done field work in a very different cultural context in India as well. So what can you sh share about? Well, I think first of all, the problem is that a lot of women don't even understand what a sexual harassment is you know unless you are groping or touching mm. or actually being raped so a lot of these things don't get reported and when you come as a foreign student in in the US you um, if you get harassed in your lab situation or in the university you don't even know what to do even though there is title nine or some of the international students office would have 
all the information but it's as far as i remember in arizona state university uh, or even other universities that it was not really told very well so first of all you are in a different culture you mm. are going through culture shock and then when you are having these issues with your colleagues or your advisors or lab mates you don't even know where to turn what to say so you keep it to yourself and you don't express it and sometimes also you know as you grow up in a culture like in india but of course i guess it happens here too where you are supposed to ignore some of these issues you no know, you face on your everyday life people are you know making these sexual remarks or something like that could be considered as sexual harassments uh, even if they are not touching and groping you uh but you just learn to ignore it you sort of develop a thick skin so you don't even realize that you are being sexually harassed and you are supposed to report or you are supposed to say something you are not doing it uh, and i had this similar problem in field and i don't mm. didn't even realize that i sh- should have reported to the tamil nadu forest department this until is in india. this is in india and you know there was an officer who asked me to come out who said that she wants to come out at he wants to come out at night uh, to see slender loris which is a nocturnal animal and i said okay and then he came with me and he said oh i don't want your field assistance and then he said oh i would like to drink this alcohol and i said no <laughs> how the hell on earth you can do that and you know he kept quiet so you have to be extremely strong mm-hmm. and a lot of times women are not strong if you are afraid of this forest official who has the power to throw you out of the forest you sort of do or say whatever this other person wants to do so i think women have to be extremely you know knowledgeable or powerful or empowered to understand what they can do and what their power what what kind of power they have mm-hmm. uh which which makes me also think about what what can men do as well you know i want to uh, i think of myself as trying to be an ally and and want to improve the situation and i think we we have uh, uh, another guest calling in right now this is uh, dr karen james are you on i'm on can you ah. hear me welcome uh, dr karen james is a is a biologist and she actually has a darwin connection as well but <laughs> she <laughs> she's uh, she's been trying to rebuild the 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 beagle and uh, recreate his voyage but uh, uh, maybe a conversation for another time but uh, <laughs> uh she's uh, uh, at uh, uh, she's at the I'm trying to I'm forgetting the name of your Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory Sorry <laughs> sorry but, uh in in Maine so thank you for joining us so I was wondering if you uh want to talk about how what roles men might play and also i know you've been in- involved in some of these issues in terms of how the conversation unfolds online and how women face a backlash from you know uh, on social media just for discussing these issues right um i'm i'm really glad to be here Ap- apologies if i sound a bit croaky i'm getting over a cold <laughs> but um i you know i I'm aware that there are a number of efforts in scientific societies and in other fora to engage men and uh others with various kinds of privilege uh including white women on issues of um uh, on intersectional issues um to bring up uh and and begin discussing and begin addressing sexual harassment and other kinds of harassment for example um i know that that one of the other uh people who we, who might initially have called in but couldn't Jacqueline Gill mm-hmm. um also here in Maine um ran a session at the um um ecological society of america conference recently with Josh Drew from um Columbia University on making ecology safer for everyone sexual harassment and assault in the field which builds on the safe um study which I know that I I think you talked about earlier in the program yes. though I I wasn't listening um 
so there are those more sort of semi-formal ways of trying to engage uh, men. I don't know if if we know if men are showing up to those kinds of sessions at conferences. That's one question that, uh, that I have when you have big conferences with lots of parallel sessions yeah. and you have panel, you have sessions on diversity, et cetera. Um, is it just the people who are affected who show up or do the ones, do, do, does everybody, does a cross section of everybody show up? That's one issue. You also asked about um, uh, engaging online on the issues of sexual harassment um, and the, the backlash against that. There has been an amazing amount of um, online discussion about this topic, especially in the last six months or so. Mm-hmm. And I think overall it's a, it's a good thing. It's shining a light into some dark places, some very dark places. But um, there's also a fair amount of pushback for every issue that comes up, for every incident that gets publicized. Um, there is a cadre of trolls and other mm. types of people who will make life difficult um, for women and others who are speaking out. Um, and that that's something that would need to be dre- addressed hand in hand with the actual issue themselves because um, trolling people or making them feel unsafe um, the way that online discussions can trickle into real life situations um, it is going to just contribute to keeping things in the darkness. This is Janet butting yeah. in. Um, I, I, w- I want to underline that online is part of real life. Yes. Um, I definitely agree that there is always, always pushback when you want to say sexual harassment is something we need to address. As people mm-hmm. say, well, we don't even know how much there is or how severe it is. So how can we, why we shouldn't do anything until we know. Uh, yeah. Which sounds an awful lot like how some people, you know, treat climate science, among <laughs> other things. That's right. Um, but it's also, I think, you know, it's not completely mitigating the trolling and the emotional cost it uh, exacts, but the one advantage of having the pushback happen online in publicly inspectable places is there are men who are, you know, the light bulb's starting to go on. They're starting to see, oh my God, this is what you all have been dealing with mm-hmm. over and over and over. And now, you know, I see how, you know, what I thought was just me being reasonable and fair-minded and a careful empirical thinker was anything but that. It was me holding on too tight to my intuitions mm-hmm. and not thinking that maybe the people who have the relevant data about whether harassment is happening and what kind of cost it has are people I need to seek out rather than just trusting my own gut feeling on this. And absolutely, I want to just make sure that I that um, you know that my take home message there was that overall it's a net good this discussion online um, for the reason that you mentioned um, raising awareness, a sense of uh, camaraderie and solidarity amongst victims. Um, shared information about mm-hmm. where to get help, how to protect yourself from things like doxing um, mm-hmm. and resources, especially if you are somebody whose institution has not um, is, is not taking Title IX very seriously, for example. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that the development of these conversations online has been incredibly powerful. The thing we have to be careful about, though, is um, is I, I've seen some people say on Twitter and in other places that that discussion about this in, on social media is changing things, and now it's all out in the open, and it's changed, and it's fixed, and that <laughs> really could be wow. true. <laughs> that that you know we what we're doing is exposing the tip of a very big, very black, dark ice mm. iceberg, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. And so we, you know, it's not time to pop the champagne corks just yet. <laughs> um, in fact, it, it's a time for looking down into that abyss and having a reckoning and really using it as a motivator and as a, a way to communicate with each other about how to move forward. 
You know, I, I think the the discussion about what's going on online is important to consider or for us to evaluate the ways in which universities are um, approaching the prevention training. So in the state of California, um, the a business or institution that has 50 employees or more has to um, have training, sexual harassment training every two years. And so most... Uh, or th throughout the CSU, for instance, they adopted an online training module, and which means that people are sitting alone with a training, mm -hmm. with you know, with scenarios mm -hmm. which are good. Some of them they've, they've gotten a little bit better since they instituted the law. But what's not happening is sort of people getting together where they have conversations about what's happening when we had face-to-face -face training. I mean, the nice thing is my um, colleague in Women's Studies always says, you know, the nice thing about some of those trainings is you could pick out who their harassers were, you know, <laughs> so that you kind of knew who they were. But you also had women in there who were able to share information and the institution got some kind of sense of of what the what the um, discriminatory environment was like for women, so with so now that you know um, their universities seem to be getting more you know um, assertive about both training and also now sort of with the the state of California mandatory training about sexual assault as well on university campuses, um, it's uh, you know I I'm, I worry that it's actually just. Act, sort of acting more like a liability shield rather than really addressing the the problem. Mm -hmm. I think uh, one thing I was thinking that you know a lot of these things are actually meant for employees, university right. staff and uh -huh. faculty, but there isn't enough for students. I mean, if you are a graduate student or undergrad sure. students, you don't know what to do or where mm -hmm. to go. Mm -hmm. So I really think that there should be more you know, information available for students right. or training available for students. Right. I would argue, too, that for um, graduate students, for people who are being trained to be new scientists, they're in this weird position where they're kind of students and they're kind of employees, yeah. and the person they're the employee of is the advisor who's training them, who yeah. uh, in many of these cases is also the person harassing them or turning a blind eye while harassment is going on. And part of this is we haven't got a system of training new scientists where institutions are taking serious responsibility for those cohorts of scientists, or new yeah. scientists in training and their well-being. We, you know, it's just as isolating to be trained in a lab as it is to be out in the field, mm -hmm. the way we've set it up. Yes. And we need to rethink that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Uh we have about three minutes left in the show, and I want to open it up to all of you to sort of, again, get back to the question of not to put myself on the spot as representing men, but what, what can allies do and what are the steps you see that, need, that we all need to do in terms of changing the culture? I think you've taken a really important first step, which is talking about it. Mm -hmm. I think the more conversations we have and the more open people are, the more we can bring things to light and hopefully affect change. I think there's two things. Um, Bernice Sandler, who's considered the godmother of Title IX, has um, a website, and on that website she talks about sort of how men can prevent sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. So one of the things <laughs> they do is, you know, she suggests that men ask themselves, if I, if I saw this behavior happening to my mother, my sister, you know, my aunt, how would I react? And so that they start to realize that, you know, that some of this the behavior is actually, um, that they may, have, they may not have noticed is really bad. The second thing is also to, as, as people have pointed out, is to really understand that this is, about, this is about impairing women's access to education. It is discrimination. And that having that legal framework, I think, can help us address, um, address it more institutionally. I think also that, uh, you know, we need to have more male graduate students uh, in the con in conversation. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't happen. I think uh, if it happens, as far as I think, uh, with my experience, that more male will males will join. And that's probably a better way mm -hmm. to go about this. I think that men who want to help here need to shut down the, but he's such a good scientist. <laughs> they need to be clear that this kind of behavior is harming science. It's, it should be recognized as scientific misconduct, and they should treat it accordingly. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and that, that can happen online as well as in real life. And that the, the shutting down can be as simple as you know, a single tweet back at 
somebody who's being an apologist for, you know, an accused rapist in an academic setting or something like that. Um, okay. But when we see those happening, well, I can't speak for other people, but when I see that happening, I feel more empowered and emboldened and like I have, you know, allies uh, helping. And I do think the number, I feel like the number... Uh, of men participating in this discussion online has increased, but that is okay. anecdotal. We need some science. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, I think uh, we have to wind up here, and I want to thank KFCF for providing us the, plat the this hour to engage in this conversation, uh, especially Vic Beroyan, who's uh, in the booth engineering this show, and Rich Withers. And we'll be back for our regular uh, episode of Science Scandal on... Uh, February 23rd. Uh, I want to thank everybody on the panel and uh, wish you a happy Darwin Day again. <laughs> thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Thank you.